When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Hello, I'm Patrick Beeman, host and founder of the Inside the Boards podcasts. Here is our question of the day from Elsevier's Clinical Key. Let's look at a gastroenterology question. A 45-year-old man with no past medical history presents to the emergency department with abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting for the past three days. The pain started acutely in the epigastrium, and he describes it as constant and boring in nature. It radiates to his back, and he rates it 8 out of 10 in severity. It is worse when he is supine. His last bowel movement was this morning. There's been no recent dizziness, loss of consciousness, diarrhea, constipation, hematochesia, melana, or hematuria. He takes no medications. He has never had any surgeries, and he does not smoke. Physical examination shows a mild fever and his other vital signs are within normal limits. His blood pressure and pulse are stable when moving from sitting to standing. He is anecteric. Cardiopulmonary examination is normal. The abdomen is non-distended, and there are normal bowel sounds. Severe mid-apogastric tenderness is noted on palpation. There's no hepatosplenomegaly or masses present. No involuntary guarding or rebound tenderness. Stool is guaiac negative, and pulses in the lower extremities are 2+. Plus. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, acute pancreatitis, B, nephrolithiasis, C, perforated peptic ulcer, D, ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, or E, Small bowel obstruction. And the correct answer here is A, acute pancreatitis. Acute pancreatitis is the most likely diagnosis because the patient is febrile and his pain is acute, severe, located in the epigastric region, constant, boring, radiates to the back, it's worse when supine, and it's associated with nausea. For the other answer choices, B was nephrolithiasis. Although nephrolithiasis is part of the differential diagnosis of acute severe abdominal pain with associated nausea, it's lower on the differential because the pain is not in the flank region. Plus, he has no hematuria, and abdominal tenderness is unusual with nephrolithiasis. C was a perforated peptic ulcer. Epigastric pain radiating to the back could be caused by a perforated peptic ulcer, but none of the following are present in this patient. The pain becoming generalized, tachycardia, or weak pulses. Also, his normal bowel sounds and lack of guarding or rebound tenderness do not support a diagnosis of a perforated peptic ulcer. With a perforated peptic ulcer, signs of peritonitis develop over time. Choice D was a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. Ruptured AAAs can cause acute severe abdominal pain, but it is less likely in this case because he's 45 years of age, which is young for a AAA. He has never smoked, and his pain is epigastric rather than periumbilical. Plus, none of the following are present. Loss of consciousness, hypotension, a pulsatile abdominal mass, or decreased lower extremity pulses. Fever would also be uncommon for an abdominal aortic aneurysm unless the patient had a prior graft place and had an infection of the graft. Finally, a small bowel obstruction. 
Small bowel obstruction can cause acute severe abdominal pain associated with nausea, but this is unlikely given the recent bowel movement, lack of vomiting, the lack of abdominal distension, and the presence of normal bowel sounds. Learning point, constant boring, severe epigastric pain that radiates to the back and is associated with nausea and a low-grade fever is a classic presentation for acute pancreatitis. And now, let's get to this chapter from USMLE Step 2 Secrets. This is Ted O'Connell, and this is the Gastroenterology Chapter from USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th Edition. Question 1. Define gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD. What causes it? GERD is stomach acid refluxing into the esophagus. It is due to inappropriate intermittent relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. Patients with a hiatal hernia have a much greater incidence of GERD. Question 2. Describe the classic symptoms of GERD. How is it treated? The main complaint is usually heartburn, often relating to lying supine after eating. GERD may also cause abdominal or chest pain. Initial treatment is to elevate the head of the bed and to avoid coffee, alcohol, tobacco, spicy and fatty foods, chocolate, and medications with anticholinergic properties. If this approach fails, antacids, H2 blockers, and proton pump inhibitors may be tried. Many patients have already tried over-the-counter remedies before presentation, and many physicians begin empiric treatment at the first visit since lifestyle modifications often fail. Surgery in the form of a Nissen fundoplication is reserved for severe or resistant cases. Question 3. What are the sequelae of GERD? Sequelae of GERD include esophagitis, esophageal stricture, which may mimic esophageal cancer, esophageal ulcer, hemorrhage, Barrett esophagus, and esophageal adenocarcinoma. Question 4. What is a hiatal hernia? How is it different from a paraesophageal hernia? A hiatal hernia is a sliding hernia, which means that the whole gastroesophageal junction moves above the diaphragm, pulling the stomach with it. This common and benign finding may predispose to GERD. In a paraesophageal hernia, the gastroesophageal junction stays below the diaphragm, but the stomach herniates through the diaphragm into the thorax. This type of hernia is uncommon but serious. It may become strangulated and should be surgically repaired. Question 5. How does peptic ulcer disease present? Peptic ulcer disease classically presents with chronic, intermittent epigastric pain, which is burning, gnawing, or aching, and it's localized and often relieved by antacids or milk. Look for epigastric tenderness. Other signs and symptoms include occult blood in the stool and nausea or vomiting. Peptic ulcer disease is more common in men. The two types of peptic ulcer disease are gastric and duodenal ulcers. Question 6. Explain the classic differences between duodenal and gastric ulcers. Duodenal ulcers represent 75% of cases, while gastric ulcers represent 25%. Acid secretion is normal to high with duodenal ulcers and normal to low with gastric ulcers. The main cause of duodenal ulcers is Helicobacter pylori, and the main cause of gastric ulcers is the use of NSAIDs, including aspirin. Peak age is in the 40s for duodenal ulcers and in the 50s for gastric ulcers. Typical blood type for duodenal ulcers is O, and typical blood type is A for gastric ulcers. Eating food makes the pain better initially and then worse two to three hours later with duodenal ulcers. And with gastric ulcers, the pain is not relieved with food or even made worse. Question 7. What is the diagnostic study of choice for peptic ulcer disease? Endoscopy is the gold standard because it's the most sensitive test, but an upper gastrointestinal barium study is cheaper and less invasive. Empiric treatment with medications may be tried in the absence of diagnostic studies if the symptoms are typical. If endoscopy is done, a biopsy of any gastric ulcer is mandatory to exclude malignancy. Duodenal ulcers do not have to be biopsied initially because malignancy is rare. 
Question eight. What is the most feared complication of peptic ulcer disease? What should you suspect if an ulcer does not respond to treatment? Perforation is the most feared complication of peptic ulcer disease. Look for peritoneal signs, history of peptic ulcer disease, and free air on an abdominal radiograph. Treat with antibiotics such as ceftriaxone and metronidazole and laparotomy with repair of the perforation. If ulcers are severe, atypical, for example, located in the jejunum, or non-healing, think about stomach cancer or Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, which is a gastronoma, so check gastrin level. Peptic ulcer disease is also a cause of GI bleeding, which can be severe in some cases. Question 9. How is peptic ulcer disease treated initially? First, remember that diet changes are not thought to help heal ulcers, although reduced alcohol and tobacco use may speed healing. Stop all NSAID use. Start treatment with proton pump inhibitors, test for helicobacter pylori infection, and treat with antibiotics if positive. Many regimens exist, but the most common used is triple therapy with a proton pump inhibitor, clarithromycin, and amoxicillin. Question 10. Name the surgical options for ulcer treatment. What complications may occur? Surgical options are generally considered only if medical treatment has failed or if complications are present. These include perforation or bleeding. Surgical procedures for peptic ulcer disease include antrectomy, vagotomy, and Billroth 1 or 2 procedures. After surgery, especially with Billroth procedures, Watch for dumping syndrome, which includes weakness, dizziness, sweating, and nausea or vomiting after eating. Patients may also develop hypoglycemia two to three hours after a meal, which causes recurrence of the same symptoms, as well as afferent loop syndrome, which is bilious vomiting after a meal that relieves abdominal pain. They can also get bacterial overgrowth and vitamin deficiencies including vitamin B12 and or iron, which can result in anemia. Question 11. Define achlorhydria. What causes it? Achlorhydria is absence of hydrochloric acid secretion. It is due most commonly to pernicious anemia, in which antiparietal cell antibodies destroy acid-secreting parietal cells, causing achlorhydria and vitamin B12 deficiency. Achlorhydria is often associated with other endocrine autoimmune disorders, such as hypothyroidism, vitiligo, diabetes, and hypoadrenalism. Achlorhydria may also be caused by surgical gastric resection. Question 12. What are the classic differences between upper and lower gastrointestinal bleeds? For location, with upper GI bleed, it's proximal to the ligament of trites. For lower GI bleed, it's distal to the ligament of trites. Common causes of upper GI bleed include gastritis, ulcers, varices, and esophagitis. Common causes of lower GI bleeds include vascular ectasia, diverticulosis, colon cancer, colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, and hemorrhoids. The stool with an upper GI bleed is a black tarry stool called melana. Stool with a lower GI bleed is bright red blood seen in the stool, called hematochesia. An NG tube aspirate of an upper GI bleed will typically be positive for blood, but with a lower GI bleed, negative for blood. Question 13. How is a GI bleed treated? The first step is to make sure that the patient is stable by checking the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation, and giving intravenous fluids and blood, if needed, before searching for a diagnosis. Next, place a nasogastric tube and test the aspirate for blood to help determine whether the patient has an upper GI bleed, blood present in the aspirate, or a lower GI bleed, blood absent in the aspirate. Start a proton pump inhibitor drip. Endoscopy is usually the first test performed, upper or lower, depending on symptoms in nasogastric tube aspirate. Endoscopically treatable lesions include ulcers, polyps, vascular ectasias, and varices. Question 14. What radiologic imaging studies can be done to localize a GI bleed? 
Does surgery have a role? A radionuclide, that is nuclear medicine scans, can detect slow or intermittent bleeds if a source cannot be found with endoscopy. Angiography can detect more rapid bleeds, and embolization of bleeding vessels can be done during the procedure. Surgery is reserved for severe or resistant bleeds and typically involves resection of the affected bowel, usually colon. Number 15. Define diverticulosis. What are its complications? Diverticulosis is characterized by sac-like mucosal projections through the muscular layer of the colon and or rectum. It is extremely common, and the incidence increases with age. It is thought to be caused in part by a low-fiber, high-fat diet. Complications include GI bleeding, which is a common cause of lower GI bleeds, and diverticulitis, or inflammation of a diverticulum. Diverticulitis can lead to abscess formation, fistula formation, sepsis, or large bowel obstruction. Question 16. How do you diagnose and treat diverticulitis? What test should a patient have after a treated episode of diverticulitis? Signs and symptoms of diverticulitis include left lower quadrant pain or tenderness, fever, diarrhea or constipation, and leukocytosis. The pathophysiology is similar to appendicitis. Stool or other debris impacts within the outpouched mucosa, the diverticulum, and causes obstruction, leading to bacterial overgrowth and inflammation. The diagnosis can be confirmed with a CT scan, if needed, which can also help to rule out complications such as perforation or abscess. In the absence of complications, the treatment is antibiotics that cover bowel flora, such as fluoroquinolone plus metronidazole, and bowel rest, that is, no oral intake. Surgery in the form of a bowel resection may be needed when the diverticulitis is complicated by perforation or abscess. After a treated episode of diverticulitis, all patients need colon cancer screening with colonoscopy because colon carcinoma with perforation can mimic diverticulitis clinically and on CT. These studies should be avoided during active diverticulitis, however, due to an increased risk for perforation. Patients should maintain a high-fiber diet. Question 17. How is diarrhea categorized? It's categorized according to etiology. Systemic. Any illness can cause diarrhea as a systemic symptom, especially in children. Osmotic diarrhea, secretory diarrhea, malabsorptive diarrhea, infectious diarrhea, exudative diarrhea, and diarrhea from altered intestinal transit. Question 18. Define osmotic diarrhea. How can an easy diagnosis be made? Osmotic diarrhea is caused by non-absorbable solutes that remain in the bowel, where they retain water, for example, lactose or other sugar intolerance. When the patient stops ingesting the offending substance, for example, avoiding milk or a trial of not eating, the diarrhea stops, an easy diagnosis. Question 19. What causes secretory diarrhea? Secretory diarrhea results when the bowel secretes too much fluid. It is often due to bacterial toxins, such as cholera and some species of E. coli, by a vipoma, a pancreatic islet cell tumor that secretes vasoactive intestinal peptide, or by bile acids after ileal resection. Secretory diarrhea persists even when the patient stops eating. Question 20. What are the common causes of malabsorptive diarrhea? Celiac disease, look for dermatitis herpetiformis and avoid gluten in the diet. Crohn's disease and post-gastroenteritis due to depletion of brush border enzymes. Malabsorptive diarrhea improves with bowel rest when the patient is not eating. Question 21. What are the common clues to infectious diarrhea? What are the common causes? Look for fever and white blood cells in the stool, only with invasive bacteria such as Shigella, Salmonella, Yersinia, and Campylobacter species. It's not found with toxigenic bacteria. Travel history, such as Montezuma's Revenge caused by E. coli, is also a tip-off. Hikers and stream drinkers may have Giardia infection. 
which presents with steatorrhea, fatty, greasy, malodorous stools that float due to small bowel involvement and unique protozoal cysts in the stool. Treat giardia with metronidazole. Also watch for Clostridium difficile diarrhea in patients with a history of antibiotic use. Test the stool for C. difficile toxin, and if the result is positive, treat with oral vancomycin or fidaxomycin. Metronidazole is now second line. Question 22. What causes exudative diarrhea? Exudative diarrhea results from inflammation in the bowel mucosa that causes seepage of fluid. Mucosal inflammation is usually due to inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, or ulcerative colitis, or can be due to cancer. Patients commonly have fever and white blood cells in the stool as an infectious diarrhea, but a lack of pathogenic organisms, chronicity, and non-bowel symptoms are clues. Question 23. What are the common causes of diarrhea due to altered intestinal transit? This type of diarrhea is seen after bowel resections, in patients taking medications that interfere with bowel function, and in patients with hyperthyroidism or neuropathy. Watch for factitious diarrhea, which is caused by secret laxative abuse. Question 24. Define irritable bowel syndrome. How do you recognize it? Irritable bowel syndrome is a common cause of gastrointestinal complaints. Patients may be anxious or neurotic and have a history of diarrhea aggravated by stress, bloating, abdominal pain, relieved by defecation, and or mucus in the stool. Look for psychosocial stressors in the history and normal physical findings and lab results. Irritable bowel syndrome is a diagnosis of exclusion. You must do at least basic lab tests, stool exams, and sigmoidoscopy. Because it is so common, however, it is the most likely diagnosis if the question gives no positive findings, especially in young adults. And remember, there's a female-to-male ratio of 3 to 1. Question 25. What should you do if, if a patient has diarrhea? In all patients with diarrhea, watch for and treat dehydration and electrolyte disturbances especially metabolic acidosis and hypokalemia. Diarrhea is a common and preventable cause of death in underdeveloped countries. Do a rectal exam, look for occult blood in the stool, and examine the stool for bacteria, ova, and parasites, as well as fat content and white blood cells. Question 26. What should you watch for in children after a bout of diarrhea? After bacterial diarrhea in children, especially E. coli or Shigella, watch for hemolytic uremic syndrome, which is characterized by thrombocytopenia, hemolytic anemia, and fragmented red blood cells on peripheral smear, as well as acute renal failure. Treatment is supportive. Patients may need dialysis and or transfusions. Question 27. Specify the classic differences between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. The place of origin in Crohn's disease is the distal ileum and proximal colon. In ulcerative colitis, it is the rectum. The thickness of the pathology is transmural in Crohn's disease and mucosa and submucosa only in ulcerative colitis. The progression in Crohn's disease is irregular with skip lesions, and the progression in ulcerative colitis is proximal with continuous from the rectum and no skipped areas. The location in Crohn's disease is from mouth to anus, and the location in ulcerative colitis is that it involves only the colon and rarely extends to the ileum. Bowel habit changes in Crohn's disease include obstruction and abdominal pain, and in ulcerative colitis is bloody diarrhea. Classic lesions in Crohn's disease include fistulas and abscesses, cobblestoning, and the string sign on barium x-ray. Classic lesions in ulcerative colitis include pseudopolyps, lead pipe colon on barium x-ray, and toxic megacolon. Colon cancer risk is slightly increased in Crohn's disease and markedly increased in ulcerative colitis. Surgery in Crohn's disease is not indicated and may make it worse and is indicated in ulcerative colitis and usually includes a proctocolectomy with ileoanal anastomosis. Question 28. 
Describe the extraintestinal manifestations of inflammatory bowel disease. Both forms of inflammatory bowel disease can cause uveitis, arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, erythema nodosum, erythema multiform, primary sclerosing cholangitis, failure to thrive or grow in children, toxic megacolon, anemia of chronic disease, and fever. Toxic megacolon is more common in ulcerative colitis. Look for markedly distended colon on abdominal radiograph. Question 29. How is inflammatory bowel disease treated? Patients are treated with 5-aminosalicylic acid with or without a sulfa drug such as sulfasalazine when stable. Steroids and other immune modulators such as azathioprine are used during severe disease flare-ups. Question 30. What causes toxic megacolon? How is it treated? Toxic megacolon is classically seen with inflammatory bowel disease, especially ulcerative colitis, and with infectious colitis, especially C. difficile. It may be precipitated by the use of antidiarrheal medications, which, for this reason, are usually not given for infectious diarrhea. Most patients have a high fever, leukocytosis, abdominal pain, rebound tenderness, and a dilated segment of colon on abdominal radiograph. Toxic megacolon is an emergency. Start treatment by discontinuing all antidiarrheal medications. Do not allow the patient to eat, place a nasogastric tube, and start intravenous fluids. Give antibiotics to cover bowel flora, such as ceftriaxone and metronidazole. Give steroids if the cause is inflammatory bowel disease. Surgery is required if perforation occurs when free air is seen on abdominal radiograph. Question 31. List the common findings of acute liver disease. Elevated liver function tests, including AST, ALT, bilirubin, alkaline phosphatase and or prothrombin time, and INR, jaundice, nausea and vomiting, right upper quadrant abdominal pain or tenderness, and hepatomegaly. Question 32. List the common causes of acute liver disease. Alcohol, medications, infection, which is usually hepatitis, Rye syndrome, biliary tract disease, and autoimmune disease. Question 33. What is a classic abnormality on liver function tests in patients with alcoholic hepatitis? An elevated AST that is more than twice the value of ALT, although both may be elevated. Question 34. What clues suggest hepatitis A? Describe the, the diagnostic serology. Look for outbreaks from a foodborne source. There are no long-term sequelae of infection, although acute liver failure is a remote possibility. IgM antihepatitis A virus is positive during jaundice or shortly thereafter. The incubation period for hepatitis A is about four weeks, though IgM may be detected by the time symptoms begin. Question 35. How is hepatitis B acquired? What is the best treatment? Hepatitis B is acquired through needles, sex, or perinatal transmission. Transfused blood is now screened for hepatitis B, but this risk of transmission is still about 1 in 200,000, according to the American Red Cross. A history of transfusion years ago is still a risk factor. Screening by blood banks began in 1972 in the United States. Prevention is the best treatment through vaccination. Interferon alpha-2b, peginterferon alpha-2a, adafavir, dipavoxil, entacavir, telbividine, or tenofovir can be tried in patients with chronic hepatitis and elevated liver enzymes. Question 36. Describe the serology of hepatitis B infection, including the surface, core, and E markers. The hepatitis B surface antigen is positive with any unresolved infection, acute or chronic. The hepatitis B E antigen is a marker for infectivity. Patients positive for the hepatitis B E antibody have a low likelihood of spreading disease. The first antibody to appear is the IgM hepatitis B core antibody, which appears during the window phase 
when both hepatitis B surface antigen and hepatitis B surface antibody are negative. Positive hepatitis B surface antibody means that the patient is immune as a result of either recovery from infection or vaccination. Hepatitis B surface antibody never appears if the patient has chronic hepatitis. Make sure you know and understand table 12.1 and figure 12.8. They are high yield. Unfortunately, these can't be covered in the audio version here. You just need to look at them visually to really understand it. Question 37. What are the possible sequelae of chronic hepatitis B or C? Cirrhosis and hepatocellular cancer, only with chronic, not acute infection. Question 38. What should be given to persons acutely exposed to hepatitis B? Hepatitis B immunoglobulin and hepatitis B vaccination or hepatitis B vaccination alone have been demonstrated to be effective in preventing transmission after exposure to hepatitis B virus. Question 39. Which type of viral hepatitis is the new king of chronic hepatitis? Hepatitis C. The hepatitis C virus is the most likely cause of hepatitis after a blood transfusion. Although blood is now screened for hepatitis B and C, the hepatitis C test was developed later. Screening in the United States began in 1972 for hepatitis B and 1992 for hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is also more likely than hepatitis B to progress to chronic hepatitis, cirrhosis, and cancer. Because of the relatively high prevalence in the baby boomer generation and lack of symptoms, the Centers for Disease Control has recommended that all Americans born between 1945 and 1965 have a one-time screening test for hepatitis C. Question 40. Describe the serology and treatment for hepatitis C. A positive hepatitis C antibody means that the patient has had an infection in the past but does not mean the infection has been cleared. Most patients become chronic carriers of the virus. A test for hepatitis C virus RNA is available to detect and quantify the virus. Patients with hepatitis C should also be tested for HIV and hepatitis B. They should be tested for antibodies to hepatitis A and B to determine if vaccination is required. Treatment of hepatitis C is rapidly evolving since the development of direct-acting antiviral medications. These medications are highly effective and offer the potential to avoid treatment with interferon and sometimes ribavirin. All patients with detectable hepatitis C viral level over a six-month period should be considered for treatment. Treatment regimens depend upon the hepatitis C genotype. Genotype 1 is the most common in the United States. Specific treatment regimens are likely beyond the scope of USMLE Step 2, but are included in the book for the purpose of thoroughness. A virologic response to treatment is assessed by measuring the viral load at 12 weeks following completion of therapy. A sustained virologic response is defined as an undetectable viral level at 24 weeks post-treatment. Question 41. When is hepatitis D seen? Describe the serology. Hepatitis D is seen only in patients with hepatitis B. It may become chronic with hepatitis B co-infection and is acquired in the same ways as hepatitis B. IgM antibodies to the hepatitis D antigen demonstrate resolution of recent infection. Presence of the hepatitis D antigen, hepatitis D virus RNA, and high levels of IgM antibodies to hepatitis D indicate chronicity. Question 42. How is hepatitis E transmitted? What is special about the infection in pregnant women? Hepatitis E is transmitted like hepatitis A, via food and water, with no chronic state. It is often fatal in pregnant women for unknown reasons. Question 43. What are the classic causes of drug-induced hepatitis? Acetaminophen, isoniazid, and other tuberculosis drugs such as rifampin and pyrazinamide, halothane, HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, and carbon tetrachloride. The first step in treatment is to stop the drug. 
Question 44. When should you suspect idiopathic autoimmune hepatitis? What is the serologic marker? Idiopathic autoimmune hepatitis is classically seen in 20 to 40-year-old women with anti-smooth muscle or anti-nuclear antibodies and no risk factors or lab markers for other causes of hepatitis. Treat with steroids. Question 45. What are the usual causes of chronic liver disease? Alcohol, hepatitis, and metabolic diseases. Watch for the stigmata of chronic liver disease. Gynecomastia, testicular atrophy, palmar erythema, spider angiomas on the skin, and ascites. Question 46. Which species of viral hepatitis can lead to chronic liver disease? Hepatitis B, C, and D. Hepatitis D can cause infection only in the setting of coexisting hepatitis B. Question 47. Define hemochromatosis. How do you recognize it? Hemochromatosis, in its primary form, is usually autosomal recessive. Look for a family history. Nearly 1 in 250 people in the United States are homozygous for this condition, although penetrance and clinical expression are variable. The pathophysiology is incompletely understood, but includes excessive iron absorption by the intestine. Excessive iron is deposited in the liver, potentially causing cirrhosis and or hepatocellular carcinoma, and also in the pancreas, potentially causing diabetes, in the heart, resulting in dilated cardiomyopathy, in the skin, causing pigmentation classically known as bronze diabetes, and in the joints, leading to arthritis. Men are symptomatic earlier and more often because women lose iron with menstruation. Treat with phlebotomy. Secondary iron overload can cause secondary hemochromatosis, which is classically due to an anemia that results in ineffective erythropoiesis, such as thalassemia, and excessive iron intake. Question 48. Define Wilson disease. How do you recognize it? How is it treated? Wilson disease is an autosomal recessive disease caused by the effects of excessive serum copper. Serum ceruloplasmin, a copper transport protein, is usually low or absent, and serum copper may be normal. Biopsy shows excessive copper in the liver. Patients classically have liver disease with central nervous system and psychiatric manifestations due to copper deposits in the basal ganglia. Another name for this disease is hepatolenticular degeneration, and they also have Kaiser-Fleischer rings in the eye. Treat with penicillamine, which is a copper chelator. Question 49. What are the clues to a diagnosis of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency? The classic description is a young adult who develops cirrhosis and or emphysema without risk factors for either. Alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency has an autosomal recessive inheritance pattern. Look for a positive family history. Diagnosis requires a serum alpha-1 antitrypsin less than 11 micromoles per liter, as well as a severely deficient genotype. Question 50. What metabolic derangements accompany liver failure? Coagulopathy, a prolonged prothrombin time. In severe cases, the partial thromboplastin time, the PTT, also may be prolonged. Vitamin K does not solve the problem because it cannot be utilized by the damaged liver. Symptomatic patients must be treated with fresh frozen plasma. Jaundice and hyperbilirubinemia, elevated conjugated and unconjugated bilirubin with hepatic damage versus biliary disease, which will be discussed in a moment. Hypoalbuminemia, because the liver synthesizes albumin, ascites, due to portal hypertension and or hypoalbuminemia. Ascites can be detected on physical exam by shifting dullness or a positive fluid wave. A possible complication is spontaneous bacterial peritonitis due to infected acidic fluid that can lead to sepsis. Look for fever and or change in mental status in a patient with known ascites. Perform a paracentesis. Examine the acidic fluid for elevated white blood cell count, especially neutrophils, and do gram stain, culture, and sensitivity tests. Check a glucose, which will be low in infection, and also check protein, which is high with infection. The usual causes are E. coli, streptococcus pneumoniae, 
and other enteric bugs. Treat with broad-spectrum antibiotics. Cephotaxime is a common choice. Portal hypertension. This is seen with cirrhosis and causes hemorrhoids, varices, and caput medusae, engorged veins on the abdominal wall. Hyperammonemia. The liver normally clears ammonia. Treat with decreased protein intake, which is a source of ammonia, and also treat with lactulose. The last choice is neomycin, which is no longer used as much as it once was, which kills bowel flora that make ammonia. Hepatic encephalopathy. This is mostly due to hyperammonemia. It's often precipitated by protein intake, a GI bleed, or infection. Look for asterixis, the flapping of outstretched hands, and or mental status changes. Hepatorenal syndrome, liver failure may cause renal failure. Hypoglycemia, the liver stores glycogen. And disseminated intravascular coagulation, activated clotting factors are cleared by the liver. Question 51. What signs and symptoms suggest biliary tract obstruction as a cause of jaundice? Elevated conjugated bilirubin. Conjugated bilirubin is more elevated than unconjugated bilirubin because the liver still functions and can conjugate bilirubin, but conjugated bilirubin cannot be excreted because of biliary tract disease. Marked elevated alkaline phosphatase, pruritus, clay-colored stools, and dark urine, which is strongly positive for conjugated bilirubin. Unconjugated bilirubin is not excreted in the urine because it is tightly bound to albumin. Question 52. What are the commonly tested types of biliary tract obstructions? Biliary tract obstruction, cholestasis, cholangitis, primary biliary cholangitis, formerly called primary biliary cirrhosis, and primary sclerosing cholangitis. Question 53. What are the two major causes of common bile duct obstruction? How are they distinguished? The most common cause is obstruction with a gallstone called cholidocolithiasis. Look for a history of gallstones or the four Fs, female, 40, fertile, and fat. Ultrasound often images the stone. If not, use a magnetic resonance cholangiopancreatography called MRCP or endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography, ERCP. Treatment is endoscopic removal of the stone. The second major cause of common bile duct obstruction is cancer. Look for weight loss. Pancreatic cancer is the most common type. Look for Cavassier sign, which is jaundice with the palpably enlarged gallbladder. Sometimes cholangiocarcinoma or bowel cancer blocks the common bile duct. Question 54. What are the two common causes of cholestasis? Medications, such as birth control pills, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, phenothiazines, and androgens. And also, another common cause is pregnancy. Question 55. What clues suggest a diagnosis of primary biliary cholangitis, again, previously called primary biliary cirrhosis? This condition is usually seen in middle-aged women with no risk factors for liver or biliary disease. It causes marked pruritus, jaundice, and positive anti-mitochondrial antibodies. The rest of the workup is negative. Cholesteramine helps with symptoms, but the only treatment is liver transplantation. Question 56. Who gets primary sclerosing cholangitis? Primary sclerosing cholangitis usually occurs in young adults with inflammatory bowel disease, usually ulcerative colitis. It presents similarly to bacterial cholangitis. Fever, chills, pruritus, and right upper quadrant abdominal pain are common. Question 57. What usually precipitates cholangitis? What is the tip-off to its presence? How is it treated? Cholangitis is usually precipitated by a gallstone that blocks a common bile duct with subsequent infection of the bile duct system. The tip-off is the presence of Charcot triad, fever, right upper quadrant pain, and jaundice. Treat with antibiotics and remove gallstones surgically or endoscopically after the acute infection has resolved. Question 58. What are the classic symptoms of esophageal disease? 
dysphagia, which is difficulty in swallowing, and or odynophagia, painful swallowing. Patients may also have atypical chest pain. Question 59. Define achalasia. How is it diagnosed and treated? Achalasia is caused by incomplete relaxation of a hypertensive lower esophageal sphincter and loss or derangement of peristalsis. It is usually idiopathic, but may be secondary to Chagas disease. Patients have intermittent dysphagia for solids and liquids, but no heartburn because the lower esophageal sphincter stays tightly closed and does not allow acid reflux. Barium swallow reveals a dilated esophagus with distal bird beak narrowing. The diagnosis is often confirmed with esophageal manometry. Treat with calcium channel blockers, pneumatic balloon dilatation, or botulinum toxin injection. Surgery, a myotomy, is a last resort. Patients have an increased risk for esophageal carcinoma. Question 60. What are the signs and symptoms of esophageal spasm? How is it treated? Both diffuse esophageal spasm and nutcracker esophagus, best thought of as a special variant of esophageal spasm, are characterized by irregular, forceful, and painful esophageal contractions that cause intermittent chest pain. Diagnosed with esophageal manometry. Treat with calcium channel blockers and, if needed, a surgical myotomy. Question 61. What clues suggest scleroderma as the cause of esophageal complaints? Scleroderma may cause aperistalsis due to esophageal fibrosis and atrophy of smooth muscle. The lower esophageal sphincter often becomes incompetent, and many patients have heartburn, the opposite of achalasia. Look for positive antinuclear antibody and mask-like facies, as well as other autoimmune symptoms. Remember also the crest syndrome, which consists of calcinosis, Raynaud phenomenon, esophageal dysmotility, sclerodactyly, and telangiectasias. Question 62. What do you need to know about the epidemiology of esophageal cancer? First, the epidemiology has recently changed as adenocarcinoma is now more common than squamous cell carcinoma. Adenocarcinoma is due to the long-standing effects of gastric acid reflux and thus occurs in the distal esophagus. Squamous cell carcinoma is usually caused by alcohol and tobacco and is classically seen in black men over the age of 40 years who smoke and drink alcohol. Patients complain of weight loss and food sticking in the chest, solids more than liquids. The tumor is usually in the proximal esophagus. Question 63. What is the relationship between Barrett esophagus and esophageal cancer? Barrett esophagus, which is usually caused by long-standing GERD, predisposes to esophageal adenocarcinoma. Barrett esophagus describes a columnar metaplasia of the normally squamous cell esophageal mucosa. Once Barrett esophagus is seen on endoscopy and confirmed with endoscopic biopsy, periodic biopsies must be done to monitor for the development of esophageal cancer. Question 64. What causes acute pancreatitis? More than 80% of cases are due to alcohol or gallstones. Remember the mnemonic, I get smashed. I is for idiopathic, G for gallstones, E for ethanol, T for trauma, S for steroids, M for mumps and other infections or malignancy, A for autoimmune, S for scorpion sting, H for hypercalcemia or hypertriglyceridemia, E for ERCP, and D for drugs such as isoniazid, furosemide, simvastatin, steroids, and azathioprine. Question 65. What are the classic signs and symptoms of acute pancreatitis? Patients classically have epigastric abdominal pain that radiates to the back, nausea with vomiting that fails to relieve the pain, leukocytosis, and elevated amylase and lipase levels. Watch for Gray-Turner sign, which is blue-black flanks, and Cullen sign, which is blue-black umbilicus, both of which are due to a hemorrhagic pancreatic exudate and indicate severe pancreatitis. Remember that perforated ulcers are also associated with elevated amylase and lipase levels 
and present similarly. However, patients usually have free air on abdominal radiographs and a history of peptic ulcer disease. Question 66. How is acute pancreatitis treated? Patients are not allowed to eat, a nasogastric tube is often placed, and intravenous fluids and narcotics are given. For pain control, hydromorphone or fentanyl is often used. Other options include meperidine, which has a risk of seizures, or morphine, which causes sphincter of OD spasm, though clinical evidence of this is lacking. Question 67. What are the complications of acute pancreatitis? Complications include pseudocyst formation, drain surgically if symptomatic and persistent for several weeks, abscess or infection, treat with antibiotics and drainage if needed, and chronic pancreatitis. Calcifications of the pancreas may be seen on CT or plain abdominal films. Question 68. What causes chronic pancreatitis? How is it treated? Chronic pancreatitis in the United States is almost always due to alcoholism and usually, usually results from repeated bouts of acute pancreatitis. Gallstones do not cause chronic pancreatitis. Chronic pancreatitis may lead to diabetes, steatorrhea, which is excessive fat in the stool due to lack of pancreatic enzymes, calcification of the pancreas, which may be seen on a plain abdominal radiograph, and fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies due to malabsorption. The incidence of pancreatic cancer is slightly increased in patients with pancreatitis, although smoking is a greater risk factor than alcohol for pancreatic cancer. Treat chronic pancreatitis with alcohol abstinence, oral pancreatic enzyme replacement, and fat-soluble vitamin supplements. Question 69. Distinguish between Mallory Weiss and Borhov tears in the esophagus. How are they diagnosed? Mallory Weiss tears are superficial erosions in the esophageal mucosa, whereas Borhov tears are full thickness esophageal ruptures. Both may cause a GI bleed and are usually seen with vomiting and retching, such as in alcoholics and bulimic patients, if they are not iatrogenic due to endoscopy. Diagnosis is usually made with endoscopy, during which bleeding vessels should be sclerosed and or from contrast radiographs. Mallory Weiss tears usually stop bleeding on their own or with endoscopic treatment, but Borhov tears require immediate surgical repair and drainage. Question 70. What is the rule about bowel contrast when a GI perforation is suspected? For all GI studies, barium is preferred because it provides higher quality images. However, with suspected GI perforation, do not use barium because it can cause chemical peritonitis or mediastinitis when a perforation or leak is present. Instead, use a water-soluble contrast such as gastrographin. Things get tricky in patients with a significant risk for aspiration because the lungs tolerate barium well but develop chemical pneumonitis from water-soluble contrast. When in doubt, give water-soluble contrast followed by barium once perforation has been excluded. Question 71. What are the common GI malformations in children? How are they distinguished? Pyloric stenosis has a presenting age of 0 to 3 months. The vomiting description is non-bilious and projectile. And the key words that you may see on the exam, males are much more common than females, a palpable olive-shaped mass in the epigastrium, and low-chloride, low-potassium metabolic alkalosis. Intestinal atresia, presenting age 0 to 1 week. Vomiting is bilious. Keywords are the double bubble sign and Down syndrome. Tracheoesophageal fistula, presenting age 0 to 2 weeks. Vomiting description is food regurgitation. And keywords are respiratory compromise with feeding, aspiration pneumonia, inability to pass a nasogastric tube into the stomach, and gastric distension from air. Hirschsprung disease, presenting age 0 to 1 years, vomiting is feculent, and keywords, abdominal distension, obstipation, no nerve ganglia seen on rectal biopsy, and males much more commonly than females. Anal atresia, presenting age is 0 to 1 week, vomiting is late and feculent, keywords, 
detected on initial exam in the nursery, and much more common in males than females. And finally, coanal atresia, presenting age, zero to one week, keywords, cyanosis with feeding, relieved by crying, inability to pass a nasogastric tube through the nose. Question 72. What other pediatric GI conditions are commonly found on step two? How are they distinguished? Intussusception, presenting age, three months to two years, vomiting description, bilious, keywords, current jelly stools, which is blood and mucus, palpable sausage-shaped mass, treat with pneumatic or hydrostatic enema guided by fluoroscopy or ultrasound. This is both diagnostic and therapeutic. Necrotizing enterocolitis, presenting age, zero to two months, vomiting is bilious, keywords, premature baby, fever, rectal bleeding, air in the bowel wall. Treat with NPO, orogastric tube, IV fluids, and antibiotics. Meconium ileus, presenting age, zero to one week, vomiting is feculent and late. Keywords, this is a cystic fibrosis manifestation, as is rectal prolapse. Midgut volvulus, presenting age, zero to two years, vomiting is bilious, and keywords, sudden onset of pain, distension, rectal bleeding, peritonitis, a bird's beak on abdominal radiograph, treat with surgery, mechal diverticulum, presenting age, zero to two years, vomiting description varies, and the findings and keywords, the rule of twos. The rule of twos for mechal diverticulum are the following. 2% of the population is affected. It's two inches long and within two feet of the ileocolic junction. It presents in the first two years of life. Mechal diverticulum can cause intussusception, obstruction, or volvulus. Also look for GI ulceration and bleeding. Use a mechal scan to detect and treat it with surgery. Strangulated hernia can present at any age. Vomiting description is bilious. And findings and keywords, physical exam detects bowel loops in the inguinal canal. Question 73. Which GI malformation primarily causes respiratory problems? Diaphragmatic hernia, which is more common in males. 90% are on the left side. The main point to know is that the bowel herniates into the thorax through the diaphragmatic defect compressing the lung and impeding lung development. Pulmonary hypoplasia develops. Patients present with respiratory distress and have bowel sounds in the chest and bowel loops in the thorax on chest radiographs. Treat with surgical correction of the diaphragm. Question 74. How are omphalocele and gastroschisis differentiated? An omphalocele associated with other congenital anomalies is located in the midline. The sac contains multiple abdominal organs, the umbilical ring is absent, and other anomalies are common. Gastroschisis is to the right of the midline. Only small bowel is exposed. There's no true hernia sac. The umbilical ring is present, and other anomalies are rare. Question 75. What is henoch schonlein purpura? Why is it mentioned in the GI section of this book? henoch schonlein purpura is a vasculitis that may present with GI bleeding and abdominal pain. Look for a history of upper respiratory infection, characteristic rash on the lower extremities and buttocks, swelling in the hands and feet, arthritis, and or hematuria and proteinuria. Treat supportively with hydration, rest, and pain relief. Question 76. What is the most common cause of diarrhea in children? As a primary cause, probably viral gastroenteritis, such as Norwalk virus and rotavirus. Remember, however, that diarrhea is often a nonspecific sign of any systemic illness, such as otitis media, pneumonia, and urinary tract infection. Question 77. True or false? Children may develop inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome. True. Abdominal pain may be the result of inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome. Diarrhea, fever, bloody stools, anemia, joint pains, and poor growth are more concerning for inflammatory bowel disease. GI complaints may also be due to anxiety or psychiatric problems. Watch for separation anxiety. 
children who do not want to go to school, depression, and child abuse. Question 78. What is the first step in evaluating neonatal jaundice? Why is jaundice of concern in a neonate? The first step is to determine whether the jaundice is physiologic or pathologic. Measure total, direct, and indirect bilirubin. The main concern is bilirubin-induced neurologic dysfunction, or BIND, which is due to high levels of unconjugated bilirubin with subsequent deposit in the basal ganglia. Kernicterus is a term for chronic and permanent sequelae of BIND. Look for poor feeding, seizures, flaccidity, epistotonos, and apnea in the setting of severe jaundice. Question 79. What causes physiologic jaundice of the newborn? Who gets it? Physiologic or non-pathologic jaundice is caused by normal neonatal changes in bilirubin metabolism, which results in increased bilirubin production, decreased bilirubin clearance, and increased enterohepatic circulation. These changes result in the low-risk, unconjugated, or indirect bilirubinemia that occurs in most newborns and is even more prevalent in premature infants. Bilirubin is mostly unconjugated because of incomplete maturation of liver function. In full-term infants, bilirubin is less than 12 mg per deciliter, peaks at 2 to 4, and returns to normal by 2 weeks. It peaks at days 2 to 4. In premature infants, bilirubin is less than 15, peaks at 3 to 5 days, and may be elevated for up to 3 weeks. Question 80. How is severe hyperbilirubinemia recognized? Severe hyperbilirubinemia, sometimes called pathologic jaundice, is suggested by jaundice that is recognized in the first 24 hours of life, total bilirubin that is higher than the hour-specific 95th percentile, a rate of rise is greater than 0.2 milligrams per deciliter per hour, jaundice in a term newborn after two weeks of age, or a direct bilirubin concentration that is more than 20% of the total bilirubin. Question 81. What are the causes of neonatal jaundice? Breastfeeding jaundice occurs in 1 in 10 breastfed infants and is typically seen in the first week of life. This is essentially an exaggerated physiologic jaundice due to insufficient milk intake, which leads to fluid and weight loss and an inadequate number of bowel movements to remove bilirubin from the body. Breast milk jaundice typically presents after the first three to five days of life and has traditionally been defined as the persistence of physiologic jaundice beyond the first week of life. Breast milk jaundice results from a direct effect of breast milk itself as human milk promotes an increase in intestinal absorption of bilirubin. Bilirubin levels peak within two weeks after birth and decline to normal levels by 12 weeks of age. Breastfeeding can continue as long as the hyperbilirubinemia remains in the safe zone. Illness, infection or sepsis, hypothyroidism, liver insult, cystic fibrosis, and other illnesses may prolong neonatal jaundice and lower the threshold for kernicterus. The youngest, sickest infants are at greatest risk for hyperbilirubinemia and kernicterus. Hemolysis from RH incompatibility or congenital red cell diseases such as hereditary spherocytosis, elliptocytosis, or G6PD deficiency that cause hemolysis in the neonatal period. Look for anemia, peripheral smear abnormalities, positive family history, and higher levels of unconjugated bilirubin. Metabolic disorders. Kriegler-Najjar syndrome causes severe unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia whereas Gilbert syndrome causes a mild form. Rotor and Dubin-Johnson syndromes cause conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Biliary atresia. Full-term infants with clay or gray-colored stools and high levels of conjugated bilirubin. Treat with surgery. Medications. Avoid sulfa drugs in neonates. They displace bilirubin from albumin and may precipitate kernicterus. Question 82. How is severe hyperbilirubinemia treated? Unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia that persists, rises above 15 mg per deciliter, or rises rapidly is treated with phototherapy to convert unconjugated 
bilirubin to a water-soluble form that can be excreted. A last resort is exchange transfusion, but don't even think about it unless the level of unconjugated bilirubin is greater than 20 milligrams per deciliter. Question 83. What should you do if an infant is born to a mother with active hepatitis B? An infant born to a mother with active hepatitis B should receive the first immunization shot and hepatitis B immune globulin at birth. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out.